Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. Books. Where would we be without books? Where would we be without Gutenberg? Even the thought of it so From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Michael Silverblatt, and this is Bookworm. You've just heard something brand new, Bookworm's new theme music, written and performed by the fantastic, brilliant, thrilling rock band Sparks. I have Sparks here with me today. I'm so excited to be talking with the legendary rockers from Sparks, brothers Ron and Russell Mayle. Now, I'm so completely thrilled. This is the dream of a lifetime. For me, if George Gershwin had written a theme song for Bookworm, it couldn't be better than Sparks. Um, it came as the result of a request, and the result is a dream come true. Tell me, how did you write the song? <laughs> well, to be honest, Michael, it's, it's a dream come true for us as well, because uh, partly just because of our respect for your for your show and for you personally so to do something kind of so personalized was something really special for us and then we've kind of been working in in the song territory for like 250 songs now and so of late we've kind of been working in longer and longer and longer ways to kind of break out of that cycle so when we were approached to do a theme song for your show it was kind of running counter to our whole mindset of of late to do something that only lasted 30 seconds and kind of had to say everything. So it was both an exciting and a daunting kind of assignment. And, you know, we're really pleased that that it was accepted. You know, we're we're working as a band. We kind of pride ourselves on kind of a certain amount of illegitimacy. And so to kind of have a theme song on a book show like this gives us legitimacy that we can't achieve in any other kind of way. (laughs) I wanted to remind myself not to be too serious, but I know of no better way to remind myself not to be serious (laughs) than with a spark song. Um, Is that a compliment or an insult? That's a supreme compliment (laughs) for me, because all all I have to do is hear a spark song and I start to smile, and it makes me feel like, oh, Talk like a human being. Don't don't go over people's heads. Be one of us. And when I heard first heard the song, which sounds to me like an orchestra and chorus assembled together to play a song for the circus, <laughs> I thought, my God, now, how do you make such a big sound? I mean, in all reality, that's just Russell and a machine. As of the last, I don't know, six or seven albums, we you know we record everything. We have a, a studio in uh, in my my house, and we do everything there. And uh, it's very streamlined and and modern and uh, compact, but it can be powerful when it ne- needs to be. <laughs> and so, uh, now, how many tracks are laid over one another for that? Well, for the vocals, we uh, tend to stack up 
lots and lots and lots and lots of me. So I don't know. There's probably it's a big circus. Yeah, it's a it's a to get a big circus, you need a a lot of a lot of me. So I don't know. You know, it's maybe close to fifty fifty wow. of just the vocals on on that track. On this one, though, actually, Ron Ron is chiming in on the. Uh, the gang sort of singing and uh, where would they be? Uh, it, it's it's uh, Ron and I done about 50 times. I am so happy. I want to take this moment to confer upon you the bookworm sword of gratitude. Wow. <laughs> we'll, we'll kneel. And, uh, <laughs> we are kneeling now. We kiss the ring. <laughs> I, am, I am dubbing them with the literature's Sword of gratitude, you may rise, brothers. <laughs> From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Alan Howard. Welcome to a special series, a Bookworm Retrospective, a celebration of the 33 years of Bookworm on KCRW with producer-host Michael Silverblatt. Michael is on hiatus because of health reasons. The excerpt you just heard was from September 2010, when Michael revealed the show's new theme music composed and performed by Sparks, the brothers Ron and Russell Mayle, who had joined Michael's circle of friends. This is the last of ten shows to journey through the 33 years of Bookworm and offer a retrospective look at Michael's accomplishments on behalf of writers and readers. Michael frequently begins his conversations by stating that he's honored to talk with today's guest. I can testify that he means it. For decades, I have watched his guests transform because of the honor he bestows on them. He has read almost all of a writer's work, not just the book which has been most recently published. I've watched them glow as they realize that they've been seriously witnessed by Michael Silverblatt, the bookworm. All the writers on today's show have become friends of Michael's and friends of Bookworm. In February 1992, Michael talked with his buddy Art Spiegelman, the accomplished cartoonist and creator of Mouse. My guest this afternoon is Art Spiegelman, the author of the Mouse books, Mouse, A Survivor's Tale, and Mouse, Part 2, and Here My Troubles Began, and um, probably one of the people who've altered the face of, of comics um, permanently. I, I wanted to start by talking about the way in which comic books usually defy gravity, offer superheroes, take off into space, whereas these books seem to be about powerlessness and thereby, you know, are the antithesis of what most people look for in comic books. Yeah, I suppose it's become a medium uh, of escapist entertainment, and that's kind of moving in an opposite direction, like as opposed to trying to make comics into a narcotic. I'm trying to make comics that can kind of wake you up, like caffeine comics that get you back in touch with what's happening around you. Mouse is the story of your father and his the years it took him prior to Auschwitz, to Auschwitz, and then eventually to the Catskills, that this story is told via mice as the Jews and, and cats as the Nazis, and your wife, a French woman, 
for at one point was thought to be a frog, which she converted, and so she is a mouse too. Um, and yet, whimsy is not a part of the ongoing procedures here. How did you exile it? I mean, it seems necessary to have you know taken whimsy and said you know, it will take a back seat. But was it of concern to you? Uh, well, there's a number of things that were of concern to me that. Uh, whimsy just being one of several inappropriate uh, methods um, to proceed with. So that I had to avoid a kind of uh, cheap cynicism that comes with uh, the underground comics territory I tend to walk around in. I had to also uh, steer clear of any kind of um, sentimentality or pathos so that uh, I wouldn't be guilty of creating some kind of hollow kitsch literature. Uh, And... (laughs) I also had to watch out for um, what what aspects of the story can legitimately allow for laughter with, without saying, okay, now it's time for a good laugh, now it's time for a good cry. I really, as I was trying to indicate, tried to stay clear of manipulating into an emotional response. I was trying to withhold emotional response long enough to allow for some kind of understanding. And yet within that, there are things that happened between me and my father that can only be described as funny. Unlike some other comics that I've done, it's, this is one in which I'm at service to a deposition. My father's text is driving it. You know, so there's other things that have grown up around an image that uh, explodes in my head and turns into other images surrounding it, and eventually builds itself outward into enough boxes to be a comic. But here it was like trying to inhabit my father's words and not give lie to them. These two books, Mouse and Mouse Two, are very much lest we forget books. You know, books that want to prohibit forgetfulness, loss of memory, mm-hmm. both the memory of your father the memory of the Holocaust, you know, that these are books that are against repression. Your father was alive when the first sections came out. Had he seen them? Yeah, but insofar as he had a response, it's included within the work. Mm-hmm. I mean, as part of this great self-referential process of trying to re-swallow everything that was happening, uh, there's a page within the book in which I'm showing him an earlier page. And that pretty much condenses his responses. By the end of the book, it's his tombstone mm-hmm. um, that these books are, or his testament. And I, I guess I wondered, you know, it's, it's very unusual maybe there are other examples that I don't know, for this kind of art, for comic book art, to become testamentary. I am grateful for the existence of the mouse books. I can hardly look at them for more than a couple of pages without crying, but I've read the first one many times and the second one twice, and, you know, it, it, you know, it, 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 it satisfies something in my heart or my soul that the books exist, and that is very, you know, a great cultural relief. Thank you. Michael also befriended Art Spiegelman's wife, Francoise Mouly. In February 2010, Michael brought both to the show. I am so happy today because, you know, around once a year, we visit with Art Spiegelman and Francoise Mouly to see what they have been doing. Art is, of course, famous for Mouse. Francoise has edited with him Raw magazine in the past and Little Lit. She is the art editor of The New Yorker. And together, they have put together an amazing book, The Toon Treasury of Classic Children's Comics. And I'm in love with it. And 
you know, I'd always known and had as a favorite not the virilities of the superheroes, but for me, comics, comic books were Little Lulu and all of the other half-pints, Dennis the Menace. My mom had a private brief that Dennis the Menace was my negative role model who taught me to be disobedient. And Art and Francoise have gone burrowing through the thousands and thousands and thousands of comics between 1930 and 1960, the early 60s, to find classic children's comics. Now tell me, Art, what were the criteria? Well, um, so the comics really started making their own original material in the mid-1930s, uh, starting out as a medium that reprinted comic strips. So one of the most basic sets of criteria was we weren't going to take comic strip work, but the things made for that lowly pamphlet entity, the comic book. Another thing was that it'd be work published in America, otherwise the field just got too vast. But within that vastness that's already too vast, the criteria had to do with what is worth not just reading, but rereading. What's worth revisiting the same way that uh, one would visit uh, Alice in Wonderland fruitfully once every few years, well into one's dotage, even if it's listed as a children's book. And to make a book that would sort of be the one uh, survival kit, uh, Desert Island Discs version of your kid doesn't know what comics are, even if they see little Archie in the uh, 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 supermarket rack, they still don't know what comics are and can be. And if one could only give one thing to show and demo and offer the very... uh, uh, most, the most crackling and lively of the work that was done in uh, the so-called golden age of comics. What could it be that wouldn't be a musty collector's volume but a book worth uh, um, spending a lot of time with? Francois. Hi, Michael. <laughs> We're so pleased to be here. We actually wanted to uh, prove everybody else's wrong because everybody said that children nowadays are not interested in reading and uh, they certainly couldn't um, be enticed to read old strips because it wouldn't have any reference to uh, video games or uh, iPods and we wanted to show that the work um, as a kind of solid value that it enchanted uh, kids in 1950, and it is just as enchanting for kids nowadays. The character of Little Lulu has become like any literary work, uh, somebody that is as real or more real than somebody that you would know and whose uh, example comes to mind as you encounter situations. What would Little Lulu do is my bumper sticker. <laughs> what we have in the classic children's comics treasury, the toon treasury of classic children's comics, is a case of bounty in the extreme because every page, it seems to me, has been carefully and well-designed. We have in... Art Spiegelman and Francoise Mooney, not only creative people, but here really gifted discoverers and anthologists. Thank you, Michael. Hey, Michael. Thanks a lot. That was Art Spiegelman and Francoise Mouly. In March 1990, Michael talked with Ann Beattie. She was one of his very first guests. 
Their shared humor, intelligence, and compassion brought forth a deep friendship of many decades. Anne narrated two shows in this series. We're here today with Anne Beattie, whose new novel, Picturing Will, has recently been published by Random House. Anne, it's a pleasure to have you here. Glad to be here, Michael. Um, Anne is a friend. Picturing Will, how did it start? Well, it started with a contract to write a novel, and uh, so I had that hanging over my head. And I thought that it would be interesting to write a book about a child, but it would even be of limited interest to me just to write a book from a child's perspective. And so very quickly that child accumulated a small family around him, and when they got there, then there was some momentum to, uh, to try to write a, a more complicated book than my original idea had been to write. When you have an original idea to write a book, was it just a book about a child and nothing more, or did it have a shape? No, it didn't have a shape, and in fact, this book, uh, as you know, has gone through uh, years and years of, of rewrites, really. Uh, fi it took a long time to find out what was going on in the book, partly because I didn't want to articulate to myself what was going on in the book, but once I did figure out that on some level it was all about storytelling and about omitted information or about the ways in which people deceive themselves and or deceive others, then it seemed that I certainly needed to implicate the reader somehow in this. If you really wanted to go for the hard punch, you really had to make somebody not just intellectually grant your point but get dragged in, you know. And so that's why coming up with the form of this book was so difficult at first. In this novel, Jody, a photographer who is becoming known as an art photographer, has a child, Will, has been left by a husband who um, leaves her suddenly without any signs, and there is Mel, um, a art historian from New York, who becomes her lover. There, There is a sense that she leaves one world for another. Certainly the world she had with her ex-husband, Wayne, mm -hmm. is not the world she's going to with her new lover, Mel. And yet she seems like a person who excludes the possibility of great amounts of intimacy. Well, that's interesting, actually. I think what what you have to know about Jody is that, uh, is that she, um, she's got an agenda, I mean, that there's always something going on underneath the surface and that uh, she's not doing anything in her life, photographing, taking care of the child or anything else in a very pure fashion. She's thinking if, if that appears in another context, and especially if it appears in a context that's advantageous to her, how can she use it? Well, it's very, it's very different. It's almost an inversion. Um, in the usual beating novel, I find people I like very much written about perhaps in a distanced or austere prose. Here it seems like there's a distanced person being written about in very warm prose so that you can mm. get through picturing Will without quite realizing that its heroine is kind of glacial and very ambitious because the prose has given her such a loving setting. Mm -hmm. you're, you're right, yes. It seems to me that on the one hand with Hemingway and Fitzgerald, um, you read the new book to see the next step of what they do with their prose. The books don't change very much from book to book. They get better or less good. But basically, the artistic vision and the style of writing stays constant. 
Whereas with Faulkner and Virginia Woolf, each book is a brand new experiment, and you read almost as if you're following your way through a labyrinth guided by a writer who's not going to give you very much to go by. Uh, she's finding her way in the dark, in the case of Virginia Woolf, or um, he, in the case of Faulkner, is putting a hen house together in the midst of a hurricane, as mm-hmm. he said to University of Virginia students. Um, this book seems to me to be that kind of book, a kind of eerie art book that invents itself in the process of being written. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> you should have been around all the time. I was wondering, is this okay to do? <laughs> you could have summarized it for me better than I could have summarized it myself and said, go ahead, do it. Some people have from time to time accused you of writing about um, people with ennui um, and fear of, an, of a dreadful sort. It never struck me that this was the case. It seemed to me that you were never part of the Flannery O'Connor and Nathaniel West gang. Um, Whose gang were you of? (laughs) Well, actually, you know, Hemingway. uh, I think uh, I come more out of that uh, tradition, certainly, than I do Nathaniel West, even though I admire him greatly. Um, No, I would say that I was trying to write simply realistic fiction. I think you began in Distortions as a comic writer. Oh, I forgot that. That's true. Well, I was talking, I was thinking about chilly scenes of winter, uh, really, just thinking about novels. Uh, yes, that's true. I'm very fond of saying that I used to have a sense of humor. It's no secret to listeners of the show that I am a big fan of Anne Beattie and lucky also to be a friend. I know that mystery is very important to you, and I, and I think in certain ways that your answer to Flannery O'Connor's mysteries and manners is secrets and surprises. Mm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I guess I just believe that uh, there are always mysteries going on. I mean, it could probably be argued that I'm not a very intuitive person because any number of times in my life, people have told me things point blank that have absolutely astonished me. Uh, It happens a lot. I'm not quite sure why that is, but uh, I do think um, that everybody has secret lives. And part of my interest in writing Picturing Will was to partially expose those secret lives to the reader, uh, but to have the reader question whether uh, the people had even come to terms very much with their secret lives or whether anything ever would make them come to terms with their secret lives. Everybody turns out to be a surprise, perhaps even to themselves. You seem to be the writer with supreme self-confidence and have at times taken people's breath away by being willing to tell people that you've done a draft of a book in three weeks, four weeks. This book was very different, took several years to write. How did you, what gave you the feeling that it was wrong? What brought you to redo and redo and redo this book? I think it was overworked to some extent and that it seemed rather didactic. I think that it would have been easy to make one clear assessment of the characters and then perhaps even to have dismissed them, that I had to do things that were slightly more ambiguous, that were indicative of how things would turn out, but did not... um, Uh, set the stage so that it was totally erroneous for the reader or, as I say, just set up characters that, once comprehensible, why would you continue reading about? 
that was part of it. And then also I do just think that in my mind there's so much anxiety associated with writing a novel that one of the ways I force myself to do it is to take a contract to do it. And then the next thing I do is to try to think of some almost Baroque system because <laughs> if I don't know where the novel is going, at least I can know where my plans you know, are going to take me. So the book went through a lot of changes. Who do you trust to let you know? Do you have readers? Well, let's put it this way, Michael. I was quivering in my shoes until I sent this first draft to you, and you said it was all right. <laughs> you, you were late in the process here. I had run it through about eight people before that I was less afraid of than you, so as long as you ask, I'll just turn the tables here. That was Ann Beattie. We'll be back after a short break. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. This is Bookworm editor Alan Howard. When Michael met Susan Sontag, he asked if they could be friends. Susan replied that they were already friends and that they must not waste any more time being distant. In March 2000, he talked with Susan about her novel in America. It's my honor to have on the show today Susan Sontag, the author most recently of In America. This is the writer whose work I've always looked to as a definition of what culture's role in society can be. In this book, in America, Susan Sontag has taken the figure of a Polish actress who comes to America, what is the year? 1876. And who is leaving her career and starting a collective enterprise an experimental farm community. And one of the first things that we notice if we're being very um, wary in reading this very ingenious book is that there are, in fact, no principles on which this experimental community is based. That's right, Michael. You noticed. <laughs> they keep talking about an ideal community. They want to f form an ideal community. It's a community of ideal, of an ideal way of living in which people will live ideally in an ideal way. <laughs> it's, I, I, don't, I don't put it that way, of course. I'm making fun of it now, following your lead. But it's true, the idealism is both entirely sincere and entirely empty. And the reader finds himself in a more and more artistically and ideologically depleted America as the new century of publicity and celebrity is dawning. It's true that the the notion of the ideal is a kind of empty notion for these people, and yet at the same time it is connected with America as this big empty space. Of course, they, they land in New York, they come from Poland, they land in New York, uh, but they head out for one of the emptiest parts of the country, which is, in fact, right here, Southern California. Anaheim, which is where they go, is a, a, a vineyard village of 2,000 people. I'm very uh, drawn as a subject matter for, for fiction and for reflection and for storytelling. 
uh, in all forms, not just in prose fiction, uh, uh, ideas of self-transformation. These books, the new novels, The Pair, The Volcano Lover, and In America, are very much more abundant, pregnant with incident, and the kind of austerity that informed the earlier work is almost not apparent. What happened? What changed? Michael, as always, you are you know right on target. Um, I really don't know. I got um, I got wiser, perhaps. I I lived more. I understood more. I suffered. Uh, I I sympathized with other people's suffering, which is which is more important than than my own suffering. Either you grow as a writer or you shrink as a writer, and I think I'm, uh, I've done a lot of work on myself. Let me put it this way, uh, and I'm not reluctant to make that kind of effort. I think what makes you a better or a bigger writer, if that can happen to you, and I, I make the, I think, not too immodest claim that I have become a better writer now, I'm a better writer with The Volcano Lover and in America, is because I've done a lot of work in myself um, to try not to shrivel and shrink. And as I say, I think of a fiction as an education of the heart, an education of, of the sympathies. That's a moral um, question for me. That's why we need novels. That's why we go back and reread novels, we, to keep ourselves alive humanly and morally so that we don't shrivel up. In 2002, Michael had a conversation with Susan about their shared commitment to the salvation of superior works of literature in danger of being lost. They were struggling mightily to preserve our humanistic values and traditions. From the Museum of Television and Radio in Midtown Manhattan, this is Bookworm. I have the honor of having with me a person I admire, as well as a person who's become my friend, Susan Sontag. We call each other, Susan and I, and practically challenge each other to find books. Susan countered with a book called Summer in Baden-Baden by Leonid Tsipkin. Let me spell it for you. You'll want to write it down. T-S-Y-P-K-I-N, Leonid Tsipkin, Summer in Baden-Baden. The book had been published in London. I found it, and I said, yes, it is. It's a masterpiece. Do you know how rare it is now, with all of the excavation going on, to find an unknown, an absolutely unknown masterpiece? Here it is, three years later, and with the collaboration, say, of New Directions, the publisher, the book is now available in America, thanks to Susan's efforts. Finding a great book is part of a life spent looking for great books, that this is an everyday occurrence, the search, and occasionally the find. I was in London, and walking down a wonderful street in London that uh, all of us who love books uh, and have the habit of buying them know, uh, it's Charing Cross Road. And outside one of the used bookshops, there was a barrel, and it was literally a barrel, about four feet high, filled with d used paperbacks that were selling for the equivalent of 25 or 50 cents a piece. And I, was, I wasn't even in the store. I was coming down the street. But I, and I remember very well because it was... I, 
was to my left, and I looked down, and just underneath the slightly exposed one on the top was a small paperback that had a photograph of Dostoevsky on the cover. So I stopped, and I picked it up. And this is indeed Summer in Baden-Baden, which is a novel, fantasia, uh, very totally original work of, of, of fiction and meditation and, and, and ecstasy by this unknown Russian writer, uh, which is in part an account of a certain period in Dostoevsky's life. So Dostoevsky's photograph uh, was on the cover. And I stood there on the street, and I remember it very well, and I opened it, and I read the first paragraph, and I thought, oh, my God, this is a great book. I've, this is a fantastic book. I just had to read the first page, and you you knew you were in the presence of something truly wonderful. The prose was so original and strange. It was not normal, ordinary narrative prose. It was it was prose that was so over the top and yet completely lucid and 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 not not difficult to read. But it was the prose of ecstasy, an amazing uh, energy, hectic energy. So of course I bought the book for 25 or 50 cents in English money um, and read it, went home that evening in the hotel and read it right straight through. It's not very long. It's about 150 pages. I thought, well, this is crazy. I'm going to try to get this book republished. And uh, I gave it first to my own publisher who wasn't interested and then I took it to New Directions. They lingered a while before they gave a decision. I think, in fact, they just didn't get around to reading it. And then I got a call from an editor at New Directions that they loved it and they wanted to publish it. So now the book exists and it's getting wonderful reviews and it is indeed a masterpiece of 20th century literature. It's, a gr- it's thrilling. This book would have been completely lost. I grew up in the American – in the sticks – I was going to say the American provinces, but let's call it the White's right name. I grew up in the sticks. <laughs> and for me, uh, my, uh, uh, the beginning of my mental life in a serious sense was discovering in the back of a stationery store um, the modern library. This stationery store in Tucson, Arizona, which was a very small town when I was growing up there and had, as far as I remember, no proper bookstore. At any rate, no bookstore with, with serious books. Uh, just, you know, maybe bestsellers or something like that. There was a stationery store which for some reason carried the modern library. I don't know if it carried every single one, but I remember a whole wall uh, at the a narrow wall at the end of the store that must have had 200 books. And I can remember wandering down to the back of that stationery store and cocking my head to the right. And I think I've spent a good part of my life with my head cocked to the right, reading the titles on spines and vaguely understanding, oh, these were the great books. And if you read these, you would be doing something wonderful. It would have pure pleasure, pure exaltation, and dare I say it, real self-improvement, self-transformation, self-transcendence. Whereas I think it was once true and could be honestly said that there were so many great books to read of the 19th and early 20th century that a life could be lived entirely in their company. Why is it now, it seems to me, that the great books, when we're talking about these unknown books, we're talking about what should be the books of our time, 
the books of this century, and they go unknown. They remain unknown. For the most part, they are not reviewed. How has this happened? That's that's a question I think think about, and also try not to think about, uh, because it's so. Uh, discouraging, so demoralizing every day of my life. I mean, I try not to think about whether literature, a literature of the highest uh, aspiration and the highest seriousness still has an audience. I know it does. You and I are not alone, Michael, and there are a number of people listening to this program that I'm sure are, are sensitive readers who, who, who do or, or would care about the kind of books that we're talking about. But it's true that, generally speaking, this has lost prestige in the culture. There is not the um, uh, support in literary magazines and in newspapers. The whole support system for spreading the news about books that are really valuable. And what do I mean by really valuable books? I mean the books you would want to reread. Ideally, one would never read a book that one wouldn't want to reread. And there's still those books are being um, produced. And they are even in the bookstores, at least for a while. I mean, the big chains will order these mm-hmm. books. If, however, they don't move off the shelves, they won't reorder. And if they're not supported by the, the whole infrastructure of, of reviewing uh, they, the news doesn't get out to people, and this is why uh, we need bookstores for people to browse. I mean, it's fine to, to order books online if you already know what you want, but you're never going to make any discoveries. That was Susan Sontag. Among Michael's first bookworm guests was Dennis Cooper, who Michael met when he was in his early 20s and had just moved to Los Angeles. They talked in July 1989. We're here this afternoon with... Dennis Cooper, whose book Closer just came out from Grove Press. Dennis is a writer whose career began in Los Angeles and whose career began really around the same time I came to Los Angeles. We've been friends for many years. He acted as director of the reading program for Beyond Baroque for two years. Before that, he created edited both Little Caesar magazine and Little Caesar Press, encouraging a lot of local writers and writers in New York and across the country as well. I think there's rarely been a writer for whom the advance um, enthusiasm and warmth from his coevals, it's kind of extraordinary. If you were being asked, what is this book about? It's about... uh emotional distance, I guess. It's about charting the kind of distance between people, individuals who try want to connect and are trying to form some kind of system by which to connect with other people not following the systems proposed by their parents or by religion or so on. A kind of anarchical idea of, of love in a way, I guess. The characters are young men, mostly. Yes, High school, the last two years of high school. And it's a kind of book in which, what, a pornographic, a philosophic, a um, metatextual approach is laid on to the materials that belong to late adolescence. And so the levels of 
horror and despair are levels that would not usually be found in the novels of late adolescence of, of this sort. When I arrived in Los Angeles, or at any rate, when, when we became friends, I came with a sense that I didn't know what was valuable about popular culture, particularly popular music. And you took me around the clubs, you know, and I got the idea of really for the first time of how expressive that music is um, and how much it means to, you know, the people whose emotions are being expressed by it. Right. When we were, when we were wandering around, it was mostly the late years of punk, beginning of New Wave, right. and there was an enormous interest in inarticulateness, in um, songs that channeled choked emotions it was a kind of code that you could kind of key into and it was a, a and it seemed to speak to you and it united you with a bunch of other kids who were equally screwed up and um and well and especially around the time of punk because punk was a kind of proposed that you know people were alone and that and it was okay to be angry about the way the world worked and, and i've always learned stuff from music well it's interesting because when i when i came to this i I was really very naive, and I remember one day you said to me, now listen, you know, the Ramones are not being naive here. The fact that these songs are not expressing very much is funny and a little scary, but certainly intentional. Right. Um, and I guess you were the first person who, what, cr convinced me that there was an aesthetic of inarticulateness right. that, that blocked response could be as expressive as the response of the previous generation, which had right. been over-response. Right, absolutely. You've become a kind of juggler of vaguenesses mm -hmm. in, in prose. There's a kind of orchestrations of ums and I don't knows and oh wells that go on in this book. What is the interest in blurring? What is that about? Well, um, part of it's just the way... I mean, it just seems to me to be an accurate reflection of the way my mind works and other people's minds, or at least certainly my mind works. I can't speak for anybody else. And the way I speak, I mean, I speak very badly and bit blurry and my sentences run on. And I mean, I've, I'm trying to work with the way I speak or something as being true to my voice, so that's that. But also... I mean, everything is blurry. There are no answers to anything. Everything is so complicated that you can't understand it. So it's really just trying to find a surface that ad adequately reflects the fact that everything is confusing and blurring. And, um, and also, it's just, it's just beautiful to hear people speak like that. I mean, the need to express something is more beautiful to me than the expression of something. The, 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 the inability to express something, the, word, the way the word love is supposed to signify something, the unknown and things, that stuff interests me much more than, than the ability to express something clearly. I mean, um, I, mean I, I read a lot of French theory, but I read it as much because it's so confusing as I do for the clarity of it, because I think they're trying to describe something. They're trying to use language in a way that it can't be used, and it's impossible. So Baudrillard, Foucault, and those people, it's fascinating to see them try to get at something. It becomes this incredible labyrinth of confusion and things, and and uh, you end up using language to try to cement things together, and that's what I'm doing in my work, too, I guess. That was Dennis Cooper. Nearly 20 years later, in 2008, they had another bookworm conversation, this time in Paris. As a guest of the cultural services of the French embassy, 
I was in Paris for the very first time. As everyone knows, Paris has long been a home to expatriate writers. And one of the great pleasures for me while here was that um, a writer who began in Los Angeles, Dennis Cooper, has been living here for nearly three years. But for many years, we would talk to one another about France. And I know that it was a... Um, a place who, which represented a kind of ultimate in its literature and in its aesthetics for you. What has it been like to be living and working in France? Um, well, um, it's been actually more of a dream come true than I had imagined it would be. So it's actually, I mean, I expected to come over here and have all my uh, dreams dashed by the reality, but... Um, but uh, no, it's been amazing. You've come to fulfill a role or a dream as well, which is that, you know, America doesn't really have the tradition of the poet Modi, the, the, the cursed poet, the pariah poet. Um, and here you are, in a sense a version of that figure. You don't speak French. People are discovering your work because the prose is published by the best avant-garde French press, P.O.L. Um, and you are beginning to be, oh, he's that guy. He's that Dennis Cooper. This dark figure involved with matters of death, drugs, spleen, disgust, you know, is, is, is part of, by now, classic French literature, probably from Villon on, certainly from Baudelaire on. It's, a, right. it's an honored figure, right. although a cursed one. Right. Because I'm so influenced by French literature, I mean, so fully, that, that, they, they, that helps them into, what the, into the kind of American thing. So it's more like... They, they'll ask me a lot of questions about, like, American culture or American this and this and this and this and this. You know, and in a way, perhaps because the writing is so French in some way that it, 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 it translates better. So, so um, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely I, I seem to be, I think I'm seen in that. Well, I just, I mean, I, one of the great honors I've ever had is I won the Prisad, you know, this well, literary award for, for whatever, the most objectionable <laughs> artist of the year. Last year, so I mean, I definitely that you know places me in the tradition with Saad and um, you know all those battalion and all that. The reaction over here has been um, has been you know it has a, had a kind of intelligence and even toned kind of quality that I've always longed for. So it's just um, you know, but they see the Americans as I'm like, oh, I'm so French, I'm so French, I'm so French, and they're like, no, you're so American, you're such an American writer. <laughs> Michael spoke more recently with Dennis Cooper in September 2021 in Los Angeles. Today, it's my great pleasure and honor to have as my guest Dennis Cooper. Dennis Cooper has a new book. It's published by Soho House. It's called I Wished. It's 125 pages long, but... If you're like me, you'll be reading it over and over and over again, partially because 
one of the subjects is getting used to the idea of death. In the book, there's a person who once lived named George Miles, who was a central figure in each of Dennis's first five books known as the George Miles Cycle. Now, tell me about your relation with George Miles, Dennis. He, he was a, I, when I, I met him when I was in, um, well, it was a private school, but it was like high school years. I was 15. So he was just this young kid, and we just had this very deep bond that lasted our whole lives. And he became very, very ill. It was called manic depression then, now it's called bipolar, and later he became psychotic, and he was very disturbed. And uh, But we stayed very close, but it was a very complicated relationship because of that. And and then eventually uh, he, he committed suicide. Death is at the center of what you do. But I would say that more than anyone else I know, you always knew who you are. I was a classical music kid, and you took me to my very first rock concert. Sparks. You took me to see Sparks. <laughs> and these two brothers, Ron and Russell Mayle, became best friends of mine. And we would go to the Whiskey or the Starwood almost every night. You were such a charismatic figure. It's a crazy question, but may I ask you how you think you became Dennis Cooper? I feel like I've always been the same. I was, you know, sort of a lost boy who loved difficult books. Now, you're my age, almost exactly to the year, and I've been doing this show. It's been a great honor and great fun for me, but for 32 years— you have embarked on one new career after another. And it's been a kind of wonderful thing still to watch you growing and developing. And I think that this book, if you'll pardon me, is not a dark book. I think it's a book of light. Is it preposterous? No, 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 no. No, I think you're right. I mean, um... Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's an act of love or whatever. So, and it's, uh, I mean, I really wanted to build, you know, I've always had this thing about wanting to keep George alive or whatever, you know, cause, because he was this person who was very, very brilliant and talented, but he never, I knew he would never achieve anything because he was too ill. On some level, these are spiritual and holy books as well. And that, you know, when we say the title in English of Proust's book, In Search of Lost Time, this is what it seems to me that this book is. It's in search of the lost time of your friendship with George Miles. Now, in the past, there have been people who've described your technique as being cold, but I think in this book... It's not that there isn't coldness, but you've eliminated that kind of refrigeration. 
as a necessity for the emotions. And I think it's amazing that you were able to. Do you feel you did? That was the goal. I mean, I really, I've never done that before. I mean, in my poetry a little bit. But I've never done that before. That was like, I really needed to do that. I really wanted to do that. This is something that I felt like I'd never done. And I mean, George is as much the subject because it allows me to do that as, you know, anything because he, he just brings it up. So I, I do, I do. I mean, I, and so I can't be objective about it, but I, do, I, I mean, I definitely, I've never done anything like this before. That was Dennis Cooper talking with his trusted friend, Michael Silverblatt. This is Alan Howard. I was the editor of Bookworm for three decades. I was there the night Michael introduced Dennis to Susan Sontag. Susan beamed and opened her arms to embrace Dennis. She knew that Dennis was another intimate friend of Michael's. Thus, they had a shared connection. The same shared connection we all developed listening to Bookworm over the years. We are a vast community of listeners stretching across the entire planet. In the history of the world, has there ever been a comparable literary archive and achievement? It is the life's work of Michael Silverblatt, and it is available at kcrw.com bookworm. On today's show, Michael talked with Ron and Russell Mayle, Art Spiegelman and Francoise Mouly, Ann Beattie, Susan Sontag, and Dennis Cooper. It has been my honor to produce this series with Connie Alvarez. We are grateful to the entire staff of KCRW and to other bookworm producers, Melinda Siegel, Michelle Escobar, and Sean Sullivan. Special thanks to KCRW President Jennifer Farrow, who kept Bookworm alive after Ruth Seymour retired. We thank engineers P.J. Shahamet, Mario Diaz, Bob Carlson, and J.C. Swadek. Thanks to Lannan Foundation for its longtime support, especially Patrick Lannan, John Lannan, and Martha Jessup. Thanks also to Craig Thine, Alan Felsenthal, Lisa Finn, and Michael's sister, Joan Bykowski. Bookworm and this retrospective are made possible by Lannan Foundation. Finally, I will leave you with one question. The question Michael always asked me and usually asked of everyone he encountered, what are you reading? I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I am a book.
tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.